Profane Faith fam, can we talk just for a second? I mean, granted, the nature of a podcast is talking, rather a monologue, but this week I wanted to touch on something that I've really been feeling and pondering on for quite some time now, and I think it's it's something that we struggle with um, continually, um, along with the issues of racism, along with the issues of classism, along with the issues of transphobia, of homophobia. We're dealing with issues of also human sexuality um, and sexism that as I have seen it and as I have done my own research and engaged with it, any conversation of movement forward, uh, of progress, is easily 100 years, if not 150 years behind the conversation on race. The challenge with that is that so often cishet men feel as though there is a sense of ownership over women. Um, There is a sense of superiority. And this is something that I struggle with. I've been watching uh, The Handmaid's Tale lately. um, And I also watched, recently watched the movie um, Promising Young Girl where without spoiling the end raises some very very deep issues in regards to how misogynistic we are uh as a male i don't know what it's like to be a woman as somebody who's married to one i can see just the amount of visceral hate that certain people have towards women in general and we haven't even gotten to intersectionality So this week, um, my guest is discussing this and so much more uh, in her new book. And I'm hoping that we can hear with ears to actually improve and do something, even if it is within the Profane Faith podcast community. Um, These are some areas uh, that uh, if it was something going to keep me up at night, this would definitely be something that would keep me up at night, raising a young girl soon to be a young woman and to think that she's entering into a world where rape and her sexuality is often seen as a joke and overlooked and if she brings up something that's something about something that happened to her it then becomes her fault so i hope for more i want more and i'm excited to have my guest on this week Let's get at it, folks. It's Profane Faith. You, 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 you give us a hard time for being white, being American, and being in control. I did more for our black population than anybody other than Abraham Lincoln. Okay? And nobody's even close. If you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. It's our God, Jesus Christ, has turned the tables on you. Amen. Victory. I hear a sound of an abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. The Lord says it is done. I bet he can't wait to go home and be become a black man again. This is Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. We won't be trying to answer difficult questions. Rather, we'll be engaging them and asking better ones regarding faith, 
race, gender, and religion. I'm your host, Daniel White-Hodge. All right, all right, all right, good people. Here we are, here we are, here we are. It is, uh, man, what a... Golly, um, it's been an interesting couple of weeks. Welcome back to, uh, to those of you who, uh, you know, keep up with Profane Faith. Um, you know, we took, uh, as you know, we took, uh, was it last week off? And, um, you know, I did that for several reasons. One, the, well, the the, the episode that dealt with the um, George Floyd trial was long, <laughs> Uh, so any of you who listened to that, you already know that was just a long one. There was a lot of people who, um, you know, contributed to that. And, uh, you know, I, I, I wanted to give them their space. And even in that, I still was editing and cutting. I'm sure you probably say, man, how much, how much more was there? A lot of folks contributed and I thank each and every one of them. And, uh, hopefully that gave you enough time to kind of get through that episode, uh, dang near two hours. So that was really two episodes and one, if you think about it, right? Two for one. Um, and also it was finals week and I just didn't have the bandwidth. Uh, finals week always just kind of puts me in an interesting uh, place, headspace, um, especially this past year with the pandemic. And um, I, man, I, I tell you, it's just, I, it's, it's a trip to see and engage with students online um but it's even more of a trip when you know they start to fail and i've had a lot of you know students failing i think if this had been any other year i would have you know stopped everything and been like all right let me reframe my teaching methods but i honestly do not believe it has much to do with my teaching methods i'm sure some of that too that you know you can't be everything under everyone um but a lot of it has to do with just the situation that we're in right now and a lot of students are caring a lot some are working um a lot of them go you know especially once they start failing um and those of you who are students you kind of know i don't know maybe you did this maybe you just went dark like i i email them i try to get in contact with them um those of you who are professors you would probably you know you can kind of agree right you know you don't want to see anyone fail um i know i don't um but uh, a lot of folks did so there's paperwork associated with that um this year i didn't or this semester i didn't have as many plagiarized papers i usually get uh, at least one i had one um but I usually get like, you know, five or six um, on any given uh, semester. And so, of course, that goes up a little bit more uh, with, um, you know, with with the pandemic. And, uh, you know, then that involves, you know, submitting an, uh, a, an incomplete because this is usually on finals work. And then, you know, you have to go to a hearing and do all that, yada, yada, yada. So it, you know, it always adds to the... <laughs> to the to the end of the semester landscape not only that i've got you know i have a policy where i don't like data dumps uh and what i mean by that is is that at the end of the semester um you know quite a few students actually try to just turn everything in <laughs> right uh, a semester's worth of work uh turn it all in on one day uh, and i make it very clear i don't accept data dumps but every semester uh there's always a handful of students who want to turn literally everything in um discussion boards reading response papers 
you know, all those things, right? Uh, and then somehow that's going to make it up. So I just, you know, you have to have those back and forth. Like, well, how come you won't grade it? And this and this and that. If you follow me on Facebook, you know, I post a lot of uh, interesting student comments, which, you know, that always is the funny part. But, you know, the, the laborious part is just trying to make my way through, you know, a lot of papers, um, emails back and forth, because there's always students who um, are not doing good. And so you could just, you know, you're trying to make a way and, you know, give extensions um, with that. Um, at the same time, uh, they give us a very small window to turn grades in. And I got to get grades in because there are folks who are depending on that, especially, you know, at this point in the, the semester, when a lot of folks are graduating, they need those grades to get onto their transcripts. So, um, I had to turn them in, which means, you know, if you've earned a zero or 20% out of 100%, uh, yeah, I got to turn that in. So anyways, that was a long explanation as to why uh, that's kind of my, you know, walkthrough at the end of the semester for those of you who can relate and who are in any form of education. I don't know how it is in K through 12. Um, and, you know, plus I had a, a few dissertations that I was reading through as well and got to get on committees. Shout out to my man, Pablo, uh, who, who just became a doctor, man. He is all set up. He's been on the show before. In fact, he was one of the contributors uh, last last week in the, in, the, in the episode. So he just graduated. I sat on his uh, committee as well. An excellent dissertation and work. Um, I'm hoping uh, he can put that stuff into practice soon. So. Here we are, folks. Here we are. Um, so some interesting things that are happening. I'm excited to have Emily on this week. She is unreal. This book, y'all got to read this book. Um, I seriously, I got it on Kindle. Um, and I burned through it. It was just literally a page turner. And I was like, oh my gosh, this, oh my God. Oh, I can't believe that. Um, her writing style, her, her thought process, uh, just all came together and it coalesced itself just in this book. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is amazing. And so I was finally, I was, I was just happy that she responded. Uh, I had reached out, you know, via Twitter, her website, and, uh, she responded and I was like, oh my gosh, this is awesome. Um, but this gets to something that has really been itching me lately. Um, I know we talk about a lot on the show and obviously race is usually at the top of that. Uh, but something that something that I think that we don't talk a lot about is the issue of human sexuality um, and what that looks like in all the areas of that, right? Gender identity, sexuality, sexual identity, uh, sexual orientation, right? Gender roles, sexual roles, all those things um, have a big part in our lives. Um, and I struggle because on one end, there is the sense that individuals can choose whatever the hell they want to do, right? kind of in that 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 space like hey people can say whatever it's freedom of speech on the other end what happens when that hate in speech turns on somebody and really puts somebody in harm's way what happens when a joke isn't a joke anymore um and as i've like i said at the beginning of the show and as i've done my own research i feel like i've gotten to a point where um I feel like we're really easily a century or more behind whatever progress we've made on race. We're easily a century or more behind that uh, when it comes to gender, human sexuality. I don't think um, 
I don't think we've made a lot of progress. Like in terms of paper, yes, you have more women working. Um, you have more women who are visible, right? We have a vice president who's a woman. Um, and But I, I, I want to look at some of the non-tangibles. And what I mean by that is some of the things that don't always get caught, the microaggressions, the, 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 the micro-sexism that comes out on a daily. And this is something that I have to continually purge from my own ideological construct. Um, I posted recently on Facebook that this was the first semester in two decades of being in the uh, college classroom where black cishet men pushed back and gave me more shit and trouble than white males altogether in any of my classes, right? So this is the first time that I've gotten more pushback, more just, just like, ugh. From them, then I have white males. I expect it from white males all the time, every day, right? I'm ready for that. In fact, it's like they read off a script. It's like, I already know it's coming. Um, and I think, and it's not the sense, I know some of you may be thinking, yeah, damn, but that's what the classroom was about. No, 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 I invite great and hearty conversation. Don't get it twisted. Don't be just coming up in there with your opinion. <laughs> right you got you know this is a learning environment um so my goal as is really the guide on this academic journey and whatever class i'm teaching is to help folks think through their shit and part of that means challenging folks right i do it with the white folks right <laughs> why wouldn't i do it with my brothers uh when they say some sexist shit right um why would I stop at that? And so we had several conversations this uh, this semester. And, you know, and there was a host of, you know, different things in terms of, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, topics that we covered. But, you know, the most that I got pushed back on from black cishet men was on gender and human sexuality. Um, one brother didn't even come back. He just decided he wasn't even going to come back like he emailed me right after class and I thought we had like a really good conversation in terms of uh, some of the stuff that went on, right? But he just decided he was not gonna come back to either one of my classes, right? And he's a major, so I'm like, uh, okay. Um, but that's right, that's the level, right? Of, and like even with the white boys, the white boys have never even just stopped coming. Like they'll drop a class, right? Um, they'll show up just to argue with me. Um, you know, I had to like, you know, mute somebody as well. And, and like, cause he just wouldn't shut up and was just, just kept going on and on and on. And I try to give folks, you know, right. And I try to allow folks to really have a conversation. Um, but at some point, right. As the leader in this class, I got to be able to be like, all right, hold up. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, you know, and I want folks to question and to have good critical thought, but I don't tolerate disrespect. And that's where it was going to that's where it ended up it was just disrespect like i don't believe you yo really your shit yo you know you only doing this because you got your credentials you think you all that and i'm like damn you sound like the white boys now <laughs> right um you know so it was just interesting it was an interesting dynamic um i keep kind of an anecdotal um tally of what happens and you know in classes and this was just definitely one of them that caught my attention um and you know and to see that and you know i posted that on facebook and got some interesting comments and feedback and you know one brother was just like you know you gotta ask yourself why them cats felt so you know disrespected and not listened to and stuff and i'm like yeah i 
And in one sense, sure, I want that with anybody, but particularly my black students. Um, but we also have to, again, I'm not going to just allow bullshit <laughs> straight up. If you're wrong, you're wrong. Um, and I'm going to call you out on some stupid shit. Right. And I think that's the goal of the class. Everybody can't be right. And, and that includes myself. But I'm going to hit you with some facts. I'm going to hit you with some studies. I'm going to hit you with some research. So come at me with the same level of that. Not just, again, your opinion. Um, and so I get that, but that's, and again, another straw hat argument there of, right. These conversations tend to offend men's egos way too much, you know, and somebody commented also like, well, you know, you just got to allow, you know, the reason why, you know, the alt-right and, you know, conservatism is, you know, favorable for some black people, even though we don't necessarily agree with the, the, um, the racism is that they at least allow a black man to be a man. So what the hell does that even mean <laughs> right even that's a subjective understanding and notion right because most of the times when somebody says i gotta be a man it's usually a very one-dimensional right um view very binary view of what a man should be quote unquote um and i just i i refuse to accept that as the only way a man can be a man I refuse to accept it. And if that makes me, oh, you don't want to hear other points of view. Yeah, I don't know. I, cause I understand that that type of sexism is embedded into that binary view of men and female, male and female roles. And we see it in churches, which is what, what Emily is going to be talking about here in a minute. Um, and we see that in particularly, you know, in job, uh, on the job and, you know, as, as, uh, you know, in your careers. So, this is something that I, obviously we're not going to figure anything out. We're not going to come with any solutions um, on a podcast, but I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take for us to move. Kind of, I feel like we're just stuck in a rut and you know, the racial piece is huge. It's big, it's mounting. Um, but man, the, the, the sexism one, man, that just feels like we're still archaic. There are a lot of folks and a lot of cats. Well, a lot of guys that still feel like women, you know, should be subservient to them. Right. And what gets me is, you know, a lot of these are a lot of men of color, black men, you know, Latinx men um, who have somehow felt like their manhood is being challenged. And, you know, and just for the record, manhood in that binary sense, right? Men do this, women do that. Um, and there's no really other explanation for that in that sense. Right. That's a it's a it's a very fragile state of manhood. Um, and I tell you, I've been watching The Handmaid's Tale and I tell you, I've just been blown away because I'm just like, what gets me about that is so much. And if you haven't seen it, go out and see it. If you got to get it like on, I don't know, however you got to get it, get it and check it out. Because so much of what that television show is about um, is stuff that we're dealing with right now right now yes it's set in the future yes it's set you know kind of in the you know up you know ahead of our time a little bit but man we're dealing with all those things right now you know there are people who feel that you know women have too much power too much say and you know they need to be put in their place so i i'm telling y'all we this these are some areas that um, i just think we got to engage with um and we don't we don't do enough we don't do enough uh, and when I say we don't do enough, what do I mean by that? Um, a lot of people are doing a lot of different things. Um, policy wise, that's not necessarily going to change ideologies. But what you know, what does it what does it mean? Right. When we continue to overlook aspects of date rape 
And like I said, I've worked with teenagers for a long time. And I've been sitting in those rooms with young women who have clearly been date raped, who told me they were date raped, uh, but don't want to do anything because they know what the consequences of that will be. What the hell is that, y'all? That's some... Man. Yeah, I... Yep. And so I, you know, and and also the embodiment of that from other women. I mean, it's kind of the embodiment, right, of racism among like black folks, you know, black folks who support the alt-right or black folks who support, you know, openly, you know, far-right white supremacist groups and stuff. You got to ask yourself like, really? Wow. That, okay. Okay. Um, how much, right, of, of that do is internalized and then pushed back on to folks. I was listening to a podcast this week. Um, this is a woman who was talking, you know, she's a scientist and she was talking about how, uh, she was talking something about a genome project. Honestly, I was kind of fading in and out, but what caught me was that she's like, it, this was on, um, Terry Gross, the, um, uh, fresh air, right? <laughs> Fresh air for Terry Gross. Um, she was on the she was on Terry Gross, and then she stops and she said, "You know, I just want to say too that you know uh, all this you know negative talk about you know women in STEM and women in the academy. Like you know, uh, I I just haven't experienced that, and you know the sky is the limit. You really can create your own thing. Those things just really aren't there, and we've just gotten all this negative press, and you know she kind of went into this tirade for like thirty seconds." And I appreciate Terry. She's a veteran host and she kept on track as she was talking about, you know, her book and, um, you know, and, you know, the science that she was going in with something related to genomes and COVID and everything. Um, but that's what stood out to me because I'm just like, wow. So in your privilege, because she was like a fellow, an endowed chaired fellow. Um, and I was like, so in all your experience as a woman in the academy, as a white woman in your academy, right? Um, this is what you're right you like you want to kind of you know point this out and the way she pointed it out like the tone and the fact that here she is talking about this stuff and then all of a sudden boom i want to get this in why do you have to put it like that first of all second of all your privilege even if that was the case your privilege that like you don't even recognize your privilege in that shit can you imagine being one of her grad students, a woman who is experiencing sexism and then bringing that to her, thinking she was an ally and asking her like, hey, can I get some help here? And her being like, wow, that doesn't exist, right? <laughs> That's the type of shit I'm talking about right there, the non-tangible shit, the stuff that you really can't put a lot of metrics on, but you know what happens. You know that shit is going on. Right, the internalized sexism. And I don't know what's going on with the person. I don't know. I don't know this person, but that particular comments just rubbed me wrong. In fact, I just turned the radio out. I was like, man, I'm done listening to this shit. This, I'm done. Right? Because you could have said that a thousand different ways. You could have been like, you know, I know there's been a lot of you know talk about you know women who have been sexually harassed uh, in the academy, especially in STEM. Uh, while I truly believe that that stuff is happening and we need to address those issues, my experience has been. You see what I'm saying? You see the differences there? Oh, mercy, folks. Uh, so, yeah. Um, I, we got a lot to talk about. So I was able to reach out to Emily. Um, she responded. And you know what? She got back to me. What I love um, about Emily is that 
on her website. And you guys got to check this out. Y'all, I mean, y'all need to check this out. What others have said about me. And you think, oh, these are going to be quotes from, you know, other pastors. This is awesome. I am praying for you to get right with God. You truly do not understand the Bible. You pick and choose scriptures that only benefit you. Seriously, wrong and erroneous. You're ridiculous. You have Satan playing with your mind. And then it just goes on. <laughs> I love that. She puts up the hate mail. Shout out to the haters, because I know there's probably some listening right now trying to gather material. Shout out to them right now. But she goes on to say, on some more serious notes, she has some lovely words from some lovely people, and she is amazing. You got to read her book. Um, it's out there. Uh, embodied justice, embodied faith, embodied living. Uh, she's a spoken word uh, poet, yoga teacher. Uh, an embodied justice enthusiast from Nashville, Tennessee. Most days you can find her frantically tweeting between yoga classes or hopping on a plane to travel to universities, conferences, and churches around the country and speak about issues of faith and sexuality. Powerful stuff. Her absolute favorite thing to do is help people make uh, peace with their bodies, whether that is through the practice of yoga or discussion about religious trauma and sex positive theology. She's pas up. Uh, she's pa passionate, excuse me, about uh, this work because she grew up in a conservative evangelical uh, Christian environment, believing that her body and her sexuality were the source of everything bad in her life. And even though uh, she knew, uh, well, she knows now uh, that that is to be false. The process of unlearning the lessons of antibody theology and healing the wounds of purity culture is a lifelong thing and it's ongoing. So I'm just I'm just here to say and she's going to break down the definition of purity culture. Y'all got to check this out. Deep shit right there, man. So whoo, powerful stuff. I'm excited uh, to have Emily Joy um, on the show. Uh, the book is Church 2 with the hashtag on there. And uh, it's a powerful book. It's out now. Um, it's out in, uh, you, you got to get it. You just got to get it and uh, and check it out. I'll put the links, of course, in the show notes. Um, it's powerful stuff. Check out this interview, y'all. Let's try to do better. Be safe. Mask up. If you can, get vaccinated. We'll talk soon. All right, fam. Cool. Um, all right. Well, shoot. Let's just hop on in then. Well, Emily Joy, glad to finally have you here on the podcast, Profane Faith. It's such a pleasure and honor to just finally get to talk with you about all this great stuff. Me too. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Indeed, indeed. Well, let me start off by asking the question I ask everybody. Um, what's been happening from birth to now? And we're going <laughs> to definitely get into the book here and, and uh, amazing stuff that you have written here. But I'd love to love to hear this. Oh, from birth to now, um, yes, you know, my, uh, my, my mantra, my repetition for myself every New Year's Eve is may fewer things happen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> and, um, every year it seems to not be the case. <laughs> um, but yeah, to make, to make a, a host of long stories, uh, short, I uh, grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in central Illinois. Um, I was the oldest of seven kids, pastor's daughter, homeschooled, the whole shebang. Um, and uh, I've lived there. I've lived uh, in Phoenix, Arizona. I've lived in Nashville now for um, the last seven years and some change. Uh, I went to undergrad uh, in Chicago. I have a degree in philosophical theology and apologetics from one Moody Bible Institute. Okay. <laughs> um, 
And uh, I'm currently pursuing my, my master's of theological studies at Vanderbilt Divinity School here in Nashville with a concentration in um, religion, gender, and sexuality. So kind of a big, big shift over from Moody. Um, in between those two degrees, I uh, got married, got divorced, came out. Uh, there's a global pandemic. So many things, many things have happened between birth and now. Wow. 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 So uh, what I mean, yes, a lot has happened there. Um <laughs> wrote a book <laughs> and i know which is which is amazing i think your book it it it's funny to me how it certain things come into your life and particularly as it, it pertains to reading um and then other things right they, you know all that whole reticular mm-hmm. thinking thing it's like you know somebody says hey there's trees and then the next thing you know you start noticing a bunch of trees and um and not that i hadn't been thinking about gender and women's issues and human sexuality before but i feel like your book put some things into perspective. What, um, for you, what got you to the point that you were like, I need to put this into a manuscript. I need to put this into like a book. You know, it's a complicated question because, uh, and a complicated answer because I, I, you know, I've always wanted to write books when I was a kid. I mean, when I was like, you know, five, six, seven years old, I was like stealing my dad's printer paper and like stapling it together to like make my own books at home and short stories where I like went on adventures with imaginary friends. And, you know, so I've always been a writer ever since I was a little kid. Um, but I also felt really strongly, um, you know, as I got to be an adult that I didn't want to just write a book to write a book. You know, I think there's sort of this thing that happens where you get a certain number of Twitter followers and everybody's like, you should write a memoir. And I'm like, first of all, I don't think anybody my age should write a memoir unless they are like Malala. Right. If you're Malala, you can write a memoir at my age. But like other than that, I think you need to like sit in the oven of life a little bit while longer. Right. So I'm like, I'm not going to write a book just because I have a certain number of Twitter followers. Like I'm not going to write a book just to write a book. I'm going to write a book when I have, you know, 50, 60,000 words to say about something. Um, And so so it was always sort of this question of like not so much not so much if I was going to write a book, but just like when what's going to be the thing that does it. And so even when church two, you know, began as a hashtag, um, I was not intending, I I didn't start that hashtag with the intention of, um, or share my story even that night with the intention of like making a book out of it. Right. Um, I was just, that was a very like grassroots emotional decision for me that was Mm. coming organically from like, I just feel like now's the time to share this. And I wasn't really intending on writing a book about it, but what I realized over the year after church two began, um, was that uh, if I didn't write the book, someone else was going to, um, mm-hmm. and they would not have done it the way I would have wanted to do it. They would not have, you know, I don't, I don't, I didn't copyright church too as a, as a word, right? Like that's not, it doesn't belong to me. And I didn't do that on purpose, but I realized I was like, if I don't write a book church too, somebody else is going to write a book church too. And it's going to be soft on purity culture and not talk about how we actually need to burn everything down and start over. And I was like, I got to write this because I feel, I feel beholden to, to be responsible for shaping this conversation, Hmm. um, you know, like it or not, like I'm a part of it. And so, so that's kind of where, where it ended up. I was like, yeah, okay, I got to write this book. So, um, I started in the summer of 2018 is when I started putting together, um, you know, a little, a little, a little pitch for my book and, um, signed on the dotted line that fall. And then it took another, you know, year and a half to get it out, but yeah. Yes. No, absolutely. I mean, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think, 
yes, finding things. I love that you stapled the, the papers together. I used to do the same thing when I was a kid. That's why I was, I was grinning. I was like, oh my gosh, I used to do the exact same thing. I used to get the printer paper and staple it. Although back in the day, it used to be, we used to call it construction paper. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's what my mom had. Um, well, tell me a little bit about just your own theological formation. I'd be very curious about how that has come uh, to be. Along with that, um, Let's see. I know we had some questions. Let me say I, I, I'm because I and I definitely want to get to this. I'm sure you've looked at. But but well, let me ask this because I'm definitely curious about your 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 theological formation and particularly how Moody has played a role mm-hmm. into that. Um, part of my own research is, is is talking with folks and figuring out, you know, how has Christian education shaped for better, or for worse, the good, the bad and mm-hmm. ugly where folks are at? Let me let me let me start there and then I'll hop on to these yeah. these questions. Yeah. Okay. Um yeah, so I mean Moody was really um kind of a next step of theological formation for me, but um you know, like I said, my dad um was a Southern Baptist pastor uh when I was he's a youth pastor when I was born. Um and then ended up kind of starting his own nonprofit. Um and he's actually still pretty well known in, in the evangelical world. Um, and does, you know, lots of speaking and traveling, preaching, kind of itinerant, uh, preaching, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so there were theological conversations were like a dinner time thing in my house, right? Like this is, um, we, I mean, <laughs> there were times when like my dad would get us so worked up about some theological idea that we would just start crying because we like couldn't figure out how to defend ourselves against, he, this was like apologetics practice wow. at the dinner table in my house. Wow. So like, this was a regular ongoing, this is why I am the way that I am. And so um, <laughs> there's, this is an ongoing regular practice in my house growing up. And so when it came time for me to go to college, you know, I had had this very negative experience with, you know, being groomed for abuse in my church when I was in high school. So I was really trying to bounce, right? Like mm-hmm. I was trying to get out. I was trying to get out of town. I was trying to get out of my parents' house. Um, and I didn't exactly know like why yet. Cause I, I hadn't been able to come to terms with the fact that like, oh, that was abusive. And my parents, you know, kind of shoved my abuse under the rug. This was all, I, I had not been to therapy yet at this point. Right. So I did not have the language or the words for this. I was just like this traumatized evangelical kid who was trying to get out of my parents' house so I could get away from this environment that had hurt me. Yeah. Um, but I didn't, it was one of those things where I was like, college is expensive. Like, I don't want to spend money to study something that I don't care about. And there's very few things that I care about. I really, I almost went to college for political science. That would have been my other, um, okay. <laughs> that would have been my, I, I was either going to be a political journalist or I was going to do what I'm doing now. Right. Um, you know? And so, but then I, you know, I found theology and I was like, wow, theology is like, like politics, but like way more fun. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, but same vibe, right. For yeah. me, it, it scratched the same itch. Um, so, so I enrolled at Moody. Um, but I was actually one of just a handful. I mean, the, the theology major at Moody was 90% male. Um, and in fact, when I was there, I don't know how it is now. Um, but when I was there, women were actually actively discouraged um, out loud uh, from being in the theology major. So like the guy who was in charge of the theology department told me that it would be better for me to be a women's ministry major and just, you know, take a couple theology classes on the side. Um, <laughs> when I visited wow. campus, he told my parents that the theology major was really more just for pre-seminary men, um, like this sort of thing, right? So, I mean, it wasn't even, they weren't even like saying the quiet part out loud. They were just saying it all out loud. Like, <laughs> the quiet, right. Yeah, right. Um, so, so when I, my theological education at Moody was like forged in the fire, right? Like I was, I was going through and that was, I think that was honestly though, my experience of, 
of, of sexism, institutional sexism at Moody was really what got me starting to pull on the threads of unraveling evangelicalism in the first place, because mm-hmm. I was like, I'm experiencing this, this thing that doesn't make any sense to me. I'm very qualified to be here. I'm very smart. Like, why are all these people telling me that I can't do this, that I shouldn't do this, that it's, it makes me a bad woman somehow to do this? Yeah. Um, and it was asking those questions that really got me unraveling uh, the thread of the tapestry of evangelicalism. Um, and so, so by the time I graduated Moody, I was pretty sure that, you know, uh, it was all kind of a, a farce. I was pretty sure that I was like, this is, this is not where I want to be, but you know, it's Moody makes it like a lot of Christian schools, uh, difficult to transfer your credits. Um, oh, yeah. so I was like, yeah, I was like, I need to, I need to finish up here and just call it good. So I finished up, called it good. Um, and yeah, I think then entry into the world after Moody kind of continued that unraveling. Okay. I was like, I got out into the world and I was like, damn, I have a map uh, for some, uh, for a world that doesn't exist. <laughs> I'm right. looking at the map and I'm looking at the world and I'm like, what? This is not helpful, right? Like this is this map says nothing about the world that I see in front of me. Um, wow. And that's kind of where that started. Okay. Okay. No, I like that. And I, and I asked that question for a lot of different reasons just because... Well, part of the audience that I have, and we've talked about this a little bit last time we met, was, you know, people just trying to figure out, like, what, where, where does God show up in this particular era where there's a lot of things, right, that are that are coming into reckoning right now. And, of course, mm-hmm. you know, theological thought, right? I mean, it's like I think a lot of folks will look back on this pandemic and look at particularly evangelical Christians who say, I am going to allow God to heal me and not take the vaccine. Uh-huh as very archaic, but right now it still seems like, well, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, so how do you you still stay connected to a God, the Godhead and some kind of divinity in that sense um, in this day and age, especially given the background of what you've written about? Uh, You know, I don't know that I do all the time. I think for me, um, this idea of once you, once you let go of this idea of like a God who's going to punish you for believing the wrong thing, then you can, you're sort of free to ask these questions, right? Like that's, that's a big part of it. So for me, because I don't believe in that God, because I don't believe in a God that's going to punish me for, for having the wrong, you know, theological belief about something. Um, it allows me to hold all of my, my theological, uh, emotions and cognitions with a very loose grip. Um, so I'm not so attached to anything that I believe theologically that I've got to like stake my mental health and my sanity and my, my sense of value and worth on it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that I always do stay connected, you know, like someday I, atheist is not the right word at all. Um, because I go to church and I work whisper, I work at a church, right? <laughs> um, I, so it's not that it's not that, um, I do believe in, in divinity. I think it's foolishness to, uh, you know, stand on the Grand Canyon or look up at the night sky and think that like, I am the pinnacle of everything that exists and there's nothing else more out there. Like, that's, <laughs> that's ridiculous. But, um, but it's definitely not this like individualistic, like personal, like sky father type of idea. Right. Um, mm. and so, so I don't know, I, I think, um, this is going to sound like really woo woo, but I feel like, you know, you, you, have enough life experiences and, um, enough heartbreaks and you love enough people and you find out that like loving other people and loving yourself actually is loving God. Like there's not, 
this is all the same thing. When we're all using different words to talk about the same thing, it's sort of like, um, oh, you know that Rumi poem about the elephant, um, where everybody's everybody's touching different parts of the elephant uh, and and describing what they see, and they're all yelling and arguing with each other because they're like, no, it's not like that, but they're actually just touching different parts of the elephant. Sometimes I think about it like that, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't know that I do like stay, I don't stay connected in the traditional sense to like my old versions and my old ideas of God that those to me are dead and gone. But I, I try to practice, um, openness, like to, to the idea that like, there's something else out there, you know, I don't know what it is, but there's some force underneath all of this. Um, and, and you can tell that when you get quiet, when you get down to like the base of your soul and your body and you get really quiet with yourself, like you can tell that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so I start there. I like that. I like that a lot. I, I, and, and I'm always, uh, I'm always educated by folks who, you know, who, who share their responses in, in, in regards to that. Cause I think uh, I'll speak for myself. It's real easy, right. To say, oh, there is no God. There is, I mean, there is this, this fantasy of, of what God could be. And like, I like what you said. You said the, 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 what do you said? The sky cam God? Or, or? The, 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 the individualistic, like personal sky father. Yes. God. Yes. Yeah. And, um, but so I, yeah, that's, that's a large part of where I've, I've been trying to look at God and, and just, and also take into account that, you know, cause I grew up Seventh-day Adventist, black Seventh-day mm-hmm. Adventist in, in, on, on top of that. So there was always this push towards revelation and the, the, tr- mm-hmm. the end of time and the time of trouble and stuff. And as I look back, so much of that, it was based in an American U.S. version of, right, you know, the the time of trouble. And I think about, you know, our fam out in Palestine right now, you mm-hmm. know, and it's like, well, yeah, that would be the end of time. You got missiles raining down on you and, and whatnot. Um, okay, this is, so this is fascinating, Emily. I appreciate you <laughs> humoring me with that. Um let me ask this question, and and this was one of the ones that I that I sent because, and I'd be curious, you know, speaking about your book, what what did you want, or what do you want your audience mm. to get from your book, your text here, because it's very rich. For those Thank of you, you who still have not read it, I highly recommend it. But let me let me start there. Yeah, you know, I think in spite of myself, um, I probably have a couple of different audiences, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't write the book for churches. I didn't write the book for pastors, right? I wrote it. I wrote it for me. I wrote it for people like me. I wrote it for survivors. I wrote it for people who have similar experiences. I wrote it for myself five years ago and 10 years ago. Like, I, you know, like this is who I'm thinking about when I'm writing the book. So for those people, I mean, a church too is, is based on me too. Right. And the power of me too is in that solidarity. That's what it means. Me too. I also, um, had this experience. I also know what it's like to go through this. And so, so for me, that's really what it's about. Um, in, in that, for that audience is, you know, this, this sense of solidarity and also, um, to hopefully give folks some logic and some language with which to speak about their experiences. Right. Cause sometimes we have these experiences. We don't know how to talk about them. We're thinking like, am I the only one, like all this stuff. And I'm like, no, here actually, like, there's all this work. Um, there's all this theology, all this academic work that's being done on these topics. Like here's the language, here's the logic so that you can talk about it with the people mm-hmm. in your lives so that you can seek justice for yourself. Right. And whatever that looks like, um, so that you can get healthy and get free. Um, 
And so that's really what it's about for me. Um, that being said, uh, you know, I know <laughs> that lots of churches and pastors uh, have have read the book and are going to read the book simply just because of the topic. Um, and, and so I didn't I didn't write the book, uh, you know, for them necessarily, because I think that um, any work around this topic has to begin with and center survivors in order to be effective, right? So much of this, mm -hmm. so much of the conversations around this uh, abuse happens and we're like, well, how can the church respond? And I'm like, you are literally centering the church in that question, right? Like, that's, um, that's good. That'll right? preach. So, so, so this is not my framework for approaching this, this question, but I recognize these folks, these communities are going to engage with this work. Um, for me, I really hope those folks uh, get convicted and take very seriously uh, the responsibility to make amends for the ways in which they have contributed to sexualized violence against folks. Um, and, and, and to understand that, like, at least if you say, well, I'm not going to do any of this stuff, at least you know you're supposed to, right? I'm kind of just laying down the gauntlet. And even if, like the rich young ruler, I open up the story, I open up the book with the story of the rich young ruler, the the, uh, the story who he comes to Jesus and says, um, you know, I, I've, I've followed all the rules, like, what do I do? And that's the question so many churches are asking, right? Like, what do we do? What do we do? Right, and Jesus says, right. Jesus says uh, you have to sell all your stuff <laughs> and follow me. And then the text says that the rich young ruler goes away sad because he doesn't want to do that, right? And so... I feel like that's a lot of churches. A lot of churches are going away sad, but my job is to just lay down the gauntlet. I'm like, here's what you got to do. Get rid of purity <laughs> culture, sell all your stuff. Right. Um, and if you want to go away sad, you can go away sad, but at least I did my job. Right. And like, and like held up a mirror. Yes. Yeah. So as an academic myself, I got to ask the question, how do you define purity culture? Cause mm -hmm. I know that word gets thrown around and I, and, and I, and, and, Every class, right? When we talk about all these isms and, you know, meritocracy, all that stuff, I always have a handful of students. There, that's what I'm talking about. Um, yeah. Always have a students who's like, I don't even know what that word means. I hear people saying it. So let me just ask the question. Purity yes. culture. So I will read to you from page 31 of my book. Because Excellent. I get asked this question every single time I do anything ever, and I've been working on it for years, and this is the best that I've got. That's what but I'm talking about. But you will get about. different people. If you ask other people what purity culture is, you're gonna get a different answer, but this is my answer. All right, uh, come on. And this is, this is the definition that I think we need to work with because, well, I'll say the definition and then I'll talk about why. Um, but this is, my, this is my elevator pitch, all right? Purity culture is the spiritual corollary of rape culture created in Christian environments by theologies that teach complete sexual abstinence until legal monogamous marriage between a cisgender heterosexual man and a cisgender heterosexual woman for life or else. Okay. So we can unpack that. Oh, man. Um, but the thing is purity culture has been the victim of concept creep Okay. In the last few years, right? So that's actually what purity culture means. But a lot of times people think purity culture means like being mean about abstinence, right? So like telling girls who have sex that they're like unsticky tape that can't stick to anybody anymore, <laughs> right? Yeah, um, yeah. And that is purity culture, right? Of course, that, that, that's definitely purity culture. Yeah. But purity culture is also being nice about abstinence, 
purity culture is if you tell someone that they have to be sexually abstinent until marriage as like a moral imperative um, for any reason, no matter how nicely you say it or what logic you have behind it, right? This is so, so people think, oh, if, if I'm just like a cool hip youth leader that tell the girls that like God is gracious, but you still have to wait for your Prince Charming, that's not purity culture. No, that's purity culture. It's just like purity culture, um, you know, dressed up a little nicer. Um, it's not, it's not quite as easy to make fun of, um, but it's still deeply, deeply harmful. Um, and so, so this is the concept creep, right? So we need to be very clear, right? That any time that you are telling someone else or even telling yourself, like, I have to do this, um, because it's like the moral imperative. Now, I'm not saying that like any practice of abstinence for any reason for any period of time is bad, right? For, yeah. for your own self, like if you are saying, I'm, I'm not gonna have sex for a certain period of time or whatever, right? Like we can get into that, but like, it, it's not the same thing as saying there, there's no good reason not to have sex. That's not what I'm saying. What yeah. I'm saying is anytime you are making a prescriptive uh, argument about it, you're engaging in purity culture. Like um, yes. And people really don't like that, right? Because they want to say, okay, how can we address church too, but still teach our same sexual theologies that we've always taught? Um, and this is not possible. <laughs> mm. So that's the bad news, right? That's and that's that's the that's the rich young ruler vibes. <laughs> Woo, Emily! All right, this is uh, all right. You preaching now? You preaching now? This is because this is. This is the fundamental question, right? That folks ask. I mean, I, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I get the same thing on race. I'm like, what do we do? You know, what do we do? And so I yeah. like the, I, I like the analogy and 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 the connection here. Um, how then? I mean, as you've have you've written this, and I feel like we've if entered an era of just open out sexism and racism. It's like. Like you said, we're that's it's not even using the the uh, your indoor voice anymore. What do no no? You said you're not even saying the things you're. you're that, that it's you, not even saying the quiet part out right. loud. You're just saying it all out loud. It just it's yeah. all it's all out there. Yeah. How have you navigated this? Getting a master's, um, working in a church. You say, mm -hmm. um, like what? How have you navigated some of these things, especially when I, I mean. As a as a as a, as a cis hetero man, I feel it from other men in having conversations when things come up in regards to women, right? And then of course you add the intersections on top of that, right? You add in, I mean, I'm part black, I'm part Mexican, and so those type of things, right, all intersect. And how, how do you navigate some of those things and 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 engage with that? I'd I'd be I'd be curious. I mean, so one thing uh, very early on and something that has continued to this day is that a lot of people, especially at the beginning, but like I said, still now, um, really didn't want to engage with church too at all because I was out um, as as queer. And so they, they didn't want to engage with it um, because... Any, because in evangelicalism, you can't engage with anything uh, a queer person does unless you say, now I don't agree with everything that they say, but X, Y, Z, and right. And we always know what that means. Queer people always know what that means. When you say, we don't agree with everything, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about the fact that I'm gay, like, right? And so, so that was a big, a, a big part of that. And, and there were people that um, even at one point were like, 
uh, there was this woman who I don't actually know if she was a therapist. She might have been pretending to be a therapist. I'm not 100 <laughs> percent sure. Um, but there was a woman who was purporting to be a therapist um, on Twitter at one point early on who was who was telling me that um, I was actually traumatizing victims uh, of sexual abuse by being pro LGBTQ and by by being open about my sexuality and by highlighting um, you know, uh, queer victims of, of church two situations, um, mm-hmm. because that was going to be traumatizing for victims that were non-affirming. And so if I really wanted to help victims, I just needed to leave my sexuality out of it. Um, and I was like, I can't like, I can't take off my gayness while I do this work and then put it back on when I'm done. Right. Just to like, you know, and, and I think actually it's very important for me to be out about my sexuality in the context of church too, because I want people to see that these are not separate issues. We act like these are all like separate things. And I'm like, race and gender and sexuality and all these things, they're overlapping and they're intersecting. And you can't just like neatly pull them apart like that in order to be able to like just inspect one, because we're not monoliths. We're not one thing. We're people. We're all people. We're complicated people with like a variety of identities. Right. And so I don't know. I just it, it it has been really difficult because a lot of people that's another thing people want to do is they want to they want to solve church, too, but they don't want to make their church affirming. Right. And I'm like the the sexualized violence of homophobia. I don't I don't do. I know affirming and non-affirming theology is like it can be a useful moniker, but I, I don't I don't do those words anymore because I think it sounds too nice. I think we need to say uh, there's affirming churches and then there's pro-suicide churches, right? Because statistically speaking, mm. um, you know, when you are told by parents or religious authority figures uh, that your sexuality is a sin, your chances of suicide attempts uh, go up. Oh, God, I can't even remember what the Trevor Project said. 30 percent, 40 percent, something like that. Right. Um, so, so I don't do affirming, non-affirming anymore. Right. Um, I just, I'm, I, I'm very, uh, I insist that we talk about these things, honestly. Um, I insist that we call things what they are. Um, but all that to say the, the sexualized violence of quote unquote, non-affirming theology, AKA homophobia, Mm -hmm. um, is actually a huge, huge part of the of the base of the foundation of the crisis of church too, right? Because anytime you know, homophobia is just part and parcel of the way that purity culture says there's only one right way to have a body, there's only one white way to love, and that that I mean that applies to straight, but then it also harms straight people. Like this idea that like there's only one right way to have a body and there's only one right way to love harms everybody actually. And so that's what I think is really unfortunate is that straight people don't see that like their sexual well-being is actually bound up with mine, right? Because mm-hmm. all of us need to get free from this idea that there's only one right way to have a body and there's only one right way to love. And and it's so it's it's unfortunate that um you know this theology about it has has made it something that uh, is sacrosanct uh, and you know impossible to question because if you start questioning it, you get kicked out of your denomination, get fired, you know. Mm-hmm. And so there really is a lot of, um, I mean, that's a whole other se- a separate conversation. But there's a lot of financial impetus to not change your mind <laughs> in the church. So, <laughs> so well, let me ask you this, Emily. Why do you think sexuality, sex in general, why is we in the U.S. Get so hung up on it. And I asked that a few years back. I, I was invited to go in and teach a study abroad course. And so I had a chance to, you know, on the, on the weekends, they gave us 
you know, like a travel stipend. You know, this is this actually wasn't a few years ago. This was like 2007. So <laughs> back, you know, back when we were still, uh, you know, there was still money for a lot of things. And uh, one of the places I traveled was Amsterdam. And so mm. I, I was just, and I've always been, curious in terms of human sexuality and so that was that was a great place just for research and just for mm -hmm. engagement and just asking questions but why then i come to the u.s and i just feel like everything's buttoned up but then you go two steps over here and you got this little this whole thing going on you've got the sex trade going on you've got people's addictions and all kind of you and we already know about right all these fetishes i mean so and i'm not even talking about like the disorder i'm just talking about like in a theological environment. Why do you think it, yeah. we get so just hung up on this shit? <laughs> um, I read entirely too much Foucault this last semester, so you probably know what Foucault would say about that. <laughs> come we, on, uh, come on, come we, on. We say we don't talk about it, but we actually talk about it nonstop. Um, yes. But, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, there's a few different things. Now, you can go, I'll, I'll say two things. Um, you can go further back than what I do in the book. I talk about this at length in the book. Um, you can, I only talk about the modern phenomenon right now. You can go further back. My friend Sarah Mosliner just wrote a book, um, Virgin Nation, where she talks about like how modern sexual mores developed out of like um, like the Victorian era and like post post World War One stuff that was gone way far back. Um, and that's a very interesting uh, line of of inquiry. And if that's something you're interested in, definitely read the book. It's great. Um, and Sarah's great. But um, in in my book, I talk about just kind of the last like three or four decades of what's going on, um, because we are dealing with, I mean, I'm, Christianity has never been particularly body positive, right? Or sex positive, right? You right. can go all the way back to, um, you know, Augustine and heck, you can go all the way back to Paul, right? Like there's, there's always been a fraught kind of relationship between Christianity and the body, Christianity and sex, of course. Um, so I'm not, I'm not in any way saying that Christianity has been historically sex positive. Um, but the purity culture that we're dealing with right now is a, is a very specific, unique and much more serious modern phenomenon than anything else that was happening before. Um, and the reason it is the way, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that it is the way that it is. Um, but one of the reasons is that um, purity culture as it exists now kind of grew out of uh, the religious right and the moral majority um, losing the battle on resisting segregation. Uh, so what was happening was there was all this stuff um, with uh, you know desegregation happening and all the Christian schools, this was in like the 70s, all the Christian schools um, we're like, we're not going to desegregate. And then the government was like, okay, then we're going to take your tax exempt status away because we're not going to give money to schools that don't desegregate. Right. So then there started to be all these like court cases. Um, really famous one would be Bob Jones, which a lot of people know about. Right. And so as the religious right, the moral majority started to lose these court cases on desegregation, they're, they're starting to realize like, we need to come up with a new thing to organize around. Right, because resisting desegregation, first of all, we're losing, uh, and second of all, it makes us look racist. So we need to come up with a different thing. Enter abortion, right? Um, and I might screw up the dates on this just a little bit because I'm not—I don't have my book page in front of me. But a lot of people don't know that abortion did not become um, an organizing issue for conservative evangelical Christians until 
the 80s, right? So Roe v. Wade was in the 70s. And even after Roe v. Wade, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, you know, not exactly famous for its uh, progressive stance on social (laughs) issues, the Southern Baptist Convention actually affirmed Roe v. Wade after its passage and had like a whole thing. They like voted and like affirmed this statement saying that like they thought that abortion should be available to protect the physical and emotional health of the mother, right? Um, this was after, so, so the Southern Baptists now are all like, we've always been pro-life. Well, that's not true because Roe v. Wade happened in the 70s and even after that, the Southern Baptist Convention was fine with it. Um, it wasn't until all the court cases with resisting desegregation happened that then um, abortion became, and there's, there's books and articles written about this. There was one particular guy who made it all happen and I can't remember his name right now, but, um, but this is a well-documented phenomenon that happened, right? And so by the time the 80s roll around, now we're all pro-life. Now we're all, the the Christian church has always been historically pro-life. And what comes along with pro-life? I mean, pro-life is essentially, it's a sexual issue, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because when we're talking about abortion, we're talking about who is allowed to reproduce, who is not allowed to reproduce. Do we want the people who are producing, (laughs) reproducing to reproduce, right? Um, It's really about ensuring the birth of lots of white, well-behaved Christian babies. Um, we don't want white women to have abortions because we want lots of white babies to be born because we are worried about being outnumbered by people who are not white. This is a deep white supremacist, racist uh, impulse behind all of this, right? And of course, you know, then it also ends up affecting women of color way worse, right? Um, all of these uh, restrictions on abortion and all that sort of thing. So anyway, all that to say, you know, in the 80s and the 90s, you see, um, you know, violence against abortion clinics start to ramp up. You see the AIDS crisis begin and then Christians jump on that. I mean, there were so many horrible things said about the AIDS crisis um, and about victims of of the AIDS epidemic by, you know, famous Christian pastors. I'm thinking particularly of, um, you know, the Falwell dynasty um, and all of that, right? But yeah. But, you know, all these things are happening at the same time. And then the 80s and 90s is also when you get true love waits starting to happen, right? This is when you get abstinence-only education. This, All of this is like this horrible, toxic soup that we're all swimming in, in the 80s and the 90s. Um, and so here comes my, I mean, I was born in 91, right? So so there's me popping in in 91, <laughs> right in the middle of all of this. Yeah. Um, this is when, you know, Josh McDowell starts publishing and then Joshua Harris, I Kiss Dating Goodbye comes out. Right, and like, right. All of this stuff. It's all happening at the same two decades. Um, And it all started because of racism, really. And that's what a lot of people don't understand is that, for example, when we talk about, um, you know, the shootings that just happened in Atlanta um, at the spas, Mm -hmm. there were so many people talking about that afterwards. And they were like, is it racism? Is it is it sexism? I don't know. And I'm like, you understand that, like, evangelical white evangelical purity culture is is fundamentally both racist and sexist, like white supremacy is baked into purity culture because it's really not possible to win at purity culture unless you are white, right? When we think about this ideal, virginal, pure woman that we are trying to protect with all of these rules, it's always a white woman, right? Like this this whole system is very, very racist. And so so to me, it doesn't even make sense to, to separate those things out. It doesn't make sense. Is it racism? Is it sexism? Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, it is. Right. I love that. Thank you for putting that really into perspective, because a lot of folks don't uh, grasp that whole thing. And and, and it's what I try to help students see the broader picture of in class, because we have 
Cornell West said it the best. We live in the United States of amnesia. We have forgotten mm. about all these historical contexts. And so it's easy for somebody to say, oh, I'm not going to vote for that candidate because they're a baby killer. They are, you know, they mm-hmm. fund abortion. It's like, well, I don't even know if you know completely what you're talking about. Like, and, and understand, <laughs> right? <laughs> and understand what is going on. This is so rich, Emily. Um, I feel like I, I, we could be really good friends if we live next door. Um, I love your foreword. Um, and folks, if you listen, you have to go out and get this book, uh, Church 2. I'm going to put the links in the show notes. You got to read this. Um, and I'm going to make some of the media connections here in a second, uh, at least some of the stuff that I've been watching and getting in. But I love the foreword by, um, uh, by Liz. Liz, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, where they talk about, you know, sexual abuse. And I'm on page, I don't know, page VXII. I'm so bad with Roman numerals. VXII, love it. Okay. <laughs> um, sexual abuse when wrapped in the sugar coating of religion in a particularly toxic and American, is a particular toxic and American poison. And I think that connects with exactly mm-hmm. what you were talking about, how all this stuff is baked in. They say it infects our society from our state level policies on Planned mm-hmm. Parenthood funding to Medicaid dollars to school sex ed, which ooh, that's a, that's I got a daughter yeah. right now who's just like, why? Why haven't we learned about this thing? more? that whole nother conversation to the availability of birth control and the Supreme Court decisions on whether birth control should be covered by employers. And in this country are powerful pockets of control churches. Mm-hmm unscrutinized locals, oh. locales of religious and patriarchal law. Woo! Mm-hmm. God damn. Liz, Liz has written a lot more books than me, so <laughs> she's really good at it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's just, I mean, that captures it. I mean, chapter one, keep your way pure or else. Mm-hmm. What are some of the or else's that you've seen um and 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 I asked that. I mean, we know about some of the big ones. I guess let me let me be specific or explicit, uh, as as, as uh, my spouse would tell me. Um, what what have you where have you seen some of those or else's in much more passive, caked in niceties? Does yeah. that make sense? Well, that's the thing about the or else, and that's why I add it there. But whenever I say the definition, I always say this too. I'm like your your or else, quote unquote. Is gonna your mileage is gonna vary on that depending on your community, right? Because it really is different place to place, right? Um, sometimes it's like do this or else um, you will get an STI and get pregnant, uh, and, or sometimes it's like do this or else no one will want to marry you, or you'll have a bad sex life with your spouse when you do get married. And sometimes it's like, do this or else you will literally burn alive forever in hell, right? Like sometimes it's that, it really, there's a whole spectrum of, of or else threats. The point is there's always a carrot on the stick, but these are smaller things too, right? Like I think, um, to go back to the, the, the discussion that we were having about like financial impetus to not yes. change your mind, Yes. like so much, you can see that in the way, um, in the book, I even bring up like, um, for example, uh, Jen Hatmaker, who who was just crucified uh, when she was like, actually, I affirm gay people. Um, or even even Joshua Harris, who wrote I Kiss Dating Goodbye, the way that his um, his, you know, kind of I'm getting a divorce. I'm not a Christian announcement a couple of years ago. Right, right, right. Um, also also was very crucified. I mean, I, I hung out uh, in his Instagram comments for like a long time, just like reading the things that people were saying, because I was like, this is fascinating because 
you know, a lot of times uh, women, queer folks, uh, you know, get treated like crap in these in these instances. Um, but I was like, this is a this is a man who wrote basically the Bible of purity culture. Yes. He's been well respected um, it, for many, many years with regards to this, like, um, and, and he also was crucified. It was just, it was fascinating to me when I was looking at those comments from people, I was like, wow, like this is just, I mean, you'd never believe how quick, I mean, you would, if you're part of the comment of, if, if you're not a part of the community, you'd never believe how quick they'd turn on you is what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, you know, you can see that. So there's, these or else's are actually really, again, to use this phrase, like baked in. And and so that's what makes it so difficult, right? Because um, there actually are consequences. I think often of like um, here, in, so I'm in Nashville um, and here in Nashville, there's a church called Grace Point um, and several of my friends go there. And uh, years ago, they used to be like this big evangelical mega church, this huge, like sprawling campus in Franklin, which is like, the fancy part of middle Tennessee where all the rich people live and like just all these hills and trees. And like, I mean, I've, I've been in that building before I've done events in that building. It's, it's beautiful. Um, and a while back, they, this is a few years ago now, um, came out and said, yes, we, you know, we support and affirm gay folks now and they lost everything. I mean, huge church split had to end up, you know, they ended up not being in that property anymore. Um, and they still exist and they're still doing stuff. And stuff, but it's just, it looks, their ministry now looks very different um, I'm sure. than it did before. Right. Um, so, so it's hard to um, comfort people about this type of thing <laughs> yeah. because I'm like, you do need to change your mind and you probably will lose stuff. Yeah. Um, and that is why uh, I, I'll have like three other jobs besides writing a book because that's not a very lucrative message. Uh, <laughs> nobody <laughs> wants to read that. Yeah. Right? Um, nobody, nobody wants to read that. Um, but that's the truth about it, right? There's, and ultimately it is upsetting, but true how much of it is about money. Um, how much of it is that people are, are their, their moral reasoning is hindered by the fact that their well-being and livelihood is dependent on um, continuing in their theology as it as it exists currently, um, and so that's that's kind of a I don't know, that's kind of a huge bummer, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I do say that money is really at the root of of so much of of what we do, um, and even uh, you know a while back I started the organization that I'm at. Um, as a director over the Center for Youth Ministry Studies. And I remember at that particular time, it felt like all a bunch of, you know, white evangelical churches was, were trying to like hire a bunch of people of color. Cause it's like, okay, I don't know about this whole sexuality thing, but at least we can hire some people, some black folk and, 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 and shut some people up. And so there, oh my you know, God. Yeah. So there was, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> right. That's so real. <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? And, and it's like, but, it's like the minute, because I, I will say this, it was myself and several other folks who I knew we were all connected and we were all kind of in these positions of power. And we thought, would be great. We could actually do some shit now. Like we could actually do some stuff and come and mm -hmm. do it. But it's interesting that within the year, as we started to actually put a plan together and try to implement and trying to create just how many of us 
ended up going in different ways. One person would get let go. Another person was told they needed to, you know, do this over here. Another person just said, screw it. I can't do it anymore. I'm just going to go on and go work this job and stuff. Mm -hmm. I eventually moved on from that. So it's just, I feel like we're in this space. And I mean, this ties back to even some of the questions that I, that I had asked you before. I mean, like in this era, right? Like we find ourselves walking through, truth and facts i mean we've lost this kind of this 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 base and i think that's part of the the the, the trumpism right that, that has come about that you get people who are um smart people i think on one end but on the other end they just completely ignore uh, aspects for example of people who still claim that the pandemic is uh you know fake and that it's created yeah. by people like bill gates and what like how do you know it, it, how can it, how can we have these type of conversations and, and I guess ultimately what is the what is the move forward do, do we move forward you talk about burning yeah. stuff down like things need to burn down can you share a little bit more about like yeah. what that looks like um I think I think constantly about um okay so one weird thing even though I grew up like super fundy and like wasn't allowed to do anything or listen to secular music or anything um I my dad really liked to watch the Simpsons yeah. Um, yeah. And so we were we were allowed to watch The Simpsons if my mom wasn't there. Like <laughs> my dad awesome. would let us watch The Simpsons that's, with him. That's awesome. Right. So I think all the time about this line from The Simpsons where Homer says facts are meaningless. You can use facts to prove anything that's even remotely true. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, and I think episode. about that all the time when we have these conversations Right. Because I am not aware personally. I mean, maybe maybe there are there's somebody out there. Um, maybe you have a listener who's like, this happened to me. This happened to someone that I know. But I am personally not aware of anybody who has moved from like a QAnon uh, pandemic denying anti-vax like faith over fear to like a mask wearing responsible member of human society standing in line to get vaccinated by virtue of reasonable argument. Right. No one has ever been Facebook fought into getting the vaccine. Right. Um, if they are vaccine is a microchip, right? Um, right. We are, and this is, I mean, I'm using the, the pandemic as a, as a, as a, example because it's so easy it's right there but i mean this is also true of like sexuality right like no one has ever been just like reasonably argued into thinking like um gay people are valuable human beings created in the image of god who deserve to have all of the love and sexual romantic relationships that they desire in whatever ways that would make them happy and most fulfilled after being like you're going to hell you know westboro baptist church standing out like picket no reasonable argument does not do that. And, and I, I think I, and a lot of other people that I know have wasted a ton of the last, um, decade and particularly yes. wasted a ton of time during the Trump presidency, yes. um, arguing with people and, and trying to plead and reason with people and appeal to their better humanity. And like, don't you see how voting for, I've had friends, I've lost, I, I knew almost no one um, who supported Trump because I got, I got disowned from that community long before the Trump presidency took place. So I didn't have anybody like that in my life, but there was one friend I had who I think got radicalized in a Facebook group or something and ended up getting super Trumpy. 
And I was like, don't you understand that like you're voting for someone who said that I can't get married? Like, don't you understand that you're voting for someone who's going to actively harm me and all of my friends? And she was just like, just got to listen to all sides. Don't want to talk politics. And I was like, okay, bye then. Because like, I'm not friends with people that think I shouldn't get married, you know? Um, Right. So all that to say, like, people believe this stuff in reckless disregard of their humanity and the humanity of others. Mm -hmm. So like appealing to the human, like appealing to the humanity is not going to (laughs) work. Um, you know, just like, Oh, please be nice to me because you're my friend. No, that didn't, that didn't stop him from voting for him in the first place. That didn't stop him from doing any of this other stuff. Right. Um, so for me, I have moved to a place and I know not everybody's in this place because some people still, for example, rely on their family members for childcare or something. Right. Mm -hmm. I actually, my parents disowned me, um, oh God, five years ago, they disowned me. Um, so, so I do not have a relationship with most of my biological family. Um, so for me, it's, it's, it's a little bit easier actually, because I'm like, I actually don't have to have those conversations. Um, and I know some people are still, you know, like I said, financially childcare, all that kind of stuff dependent on, on relatives who, who maybe don't have their best interest in mind. But, um, but for me, I have moved into a place where I'm like, I actually don't, um, I don't argue. I don't reason. I don't convince. Um, I don't do any of that stuff because I think it's a waste of time. And I think it's how the other side keeps us too exhausted to build shit. Right. It's how the, if if we are just constantly defending our humanity and like defending morality to the other side, then we're going to be way too exhausted to do stuff. Right. Because that puts our trauma, that puts our our nervous system on high alert. That's traumatizing. It's somatically exhausting. Yes. And so we get off, we get off this conversation with talking with someone on Facebook and then we, we don't have time to build stuff because we need to crack a beer and bring ourselves down from from the trauma of that conversation, right? And yes. so this is how we end up staying exhausted and don't do anything. And I look also at my own experience because I also used to be like a very zealous, genuine fundamentalist evangelical Christian. Get out of here, Emily. And no, I'm like, I meant it. Like when I was growing up and it, it was like really, I, I was like a genuine believer. It, it was not a thing that I did because my parents made me. Like okay. I really, really was a genuine believer. And two things helped me. One, reading on my own, not somebody fighting with me or having a conversation with me, but just having the time to do my own research, my own, I'm an Enneagram five. So like research is important to me, but, um, (laughs) for other people. Okay. So you get it. So (laughs) for other people, they don't care, but, um, but for, I was having time and then it was having relationships that led to conversion moments for me. It was a, yeah. it was not a reasonable argument. It was a light bulb turning on. Mm-hmm. Right. And I remember, I can think in my mind of some of those light bulb moments where I was like, Oh, this is what I believe is not correct. Um, but it wasn't because someone was fighting with me and it wasn't because someone was trying to reasonably argue with me. So I'm in a place where I, for my own, like I, my own mental health, I got stuff to do in the world. I don't have time. Right. <laughs> I don't have time to sit down and be like, here's why you should include me. I'm not doing it. Like I'm not, cause I don't care. Cause I don't want to be at any table that I have to be fought to be included at anyway. I will build my own table. I will build my own things. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at with this. I think 
because we have, we live in this world of like alternative facts and like, it literally feels like not only sometimes when we're talking to people, like not only are we on different pages, like we are in different books, in different libraries, like on different planets. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's almost no, there's almost no way we're not, we're not using words in the same way. We're not even, even with other Christians, a lot of times, right. We're not using words like Jesus, like Bible, like God, like love to mean the same thing. We're not talking about the same thing because I say love. And, and when I say, I love you, I mean, like, I'm going to fight for your justice and your well-being. And when you say you love me, what you mean is you are going to berate me and tell me I'm going to hell for loving a woman. Right. Right. This is not the same thing. We are not using the same words in the same way. Um, and I don't know any other way to get people to not use words like that other other than the way that I experienced it, which is conversion. And I, I, I use that word like a little like tongue in cheek, like conversion. But it is it really is this conversion moment and whatever, if you yeah. want to call it like the Holy Spirit or yeah. whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. But like it is that enlightenment. It is not a cognitive process. It is a it is an opening of the heart, um, and you can't make someone open their heart with the best logical reasoning that there is. So you just have to do you and work to build the world that you want to see and take care of your people. Mm. Oh man, this <laughs> is this is so rich. I I I could talk more. I know our time is nigh. Um, this deep. I like that. I, 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 man, I, the, in your conclusion, that story you told at the beginning, you said you opened this message from, oh, yeah. you know, one of your, um, mm -hmm. best guy friend from high yeah. school. Yep. That, um, that one, I was like, man, that is deep. And the, the, the quote that you say there, you know, it's on page 199. It says, and this is how I learned that even if you have the truth on your side, there will always be some people for whom the truth is not enough. When you finally learn how to stand on your own holy, sacred ground, not everyone will be thrilled about that, especially the people who benefit from your self-flagellation, <laughs> your lack of self-esteem, your porous boundaries, and your willingness to stay silent. And I, man, I, I, that one hit because I'm just like, and this kind of goes into just my own, you know, I, I completely feel you on not trying to convince people after the 2016 election it was for me a light bulb went on like i'm done trying to go out and spend countless days trying to be the diversity officer mm -hmm. or trying to teach people on intercultural calm and i've spent all these hours away from my own family trying to help <laughs> people over here who in the end ended up voting the way they're gonna vote anyway it was a, like a big fuck in you. So I'm just like, yeah, OK. And, and, and part of that goes along even with social media. I haven't seen productive arguments on social media where people are like, huh, you're right. Oh, yeah. Why was I thinking that? Um, so you're right. And about the building of that. Um, what next for you? Hmm. Um, well, I just got half a master's degree. I got to get the other half. <laughs> All uh, right. It's going well so far. Um, but yeah, I got, I got to get the other half of this degree. Um, I am, my, my wedding is in October, uh, yes. tentatively, you know, pending the plague, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> pending the plague, my wedding is in October. Um, so I got to plan a wedding. Um, that is not my forte. So I'm going to plan the wedding. I'm going to get this degree. Um, I'm going to garden. 
this lo- summer. Yes, yes. I'm gonna sit on my patio and drink wine. Yes, um, and I am. I am gonna try and sell a second book. We'll see. I gotta put. I gotta put the 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 pitch together. But um, but yeah. yeah, I am gonna write. I, I really. I found out through through writing this book. I um, I love writing books. I despise putting them out. Uh, the release, the release process was like not fun for me because, um, I am like a fragile house plant that just withers if I get too much attention. Um, and, (laughs) and so the the process of putting the book out, um, was really bad for my mental health. Actually, (laughs) I got done with it and I was like, I don't want to do that again for like a long time. Um, but I love, I just want the book to be out, but I don't want to put it out. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) That's yeah. That's how I feel. Um, but, uh, but I loved writing it. That was the most, uh, it was just so fun. And I mean, like, how do you, how do you write a book about something so serious and so depressing? And you'd be like, that's fun. But it was the, the process itself was just so rich and so fulfilling to me. Yeah. Um, just the whole time I was like, man, I want to do this always. Um, so I really actually do like writing books. Um, and so I'm going to write, I'm going to write another one. And I have several ideas. I just have to, just got to pick one. Um, any, any, any hints, any What's um, to come? All the ideas that I have are are follow ups. Um, okay, all right. They are tangentially related to church too. So I'll I'll pick a thread. There's there's two or three threads in the church two book that I want to unpack in a longer form. Um, and so that's okay. kind of what we're going with. Okay, all right. Well, I mean, so here's the thing. There's a couple of different things. I mean, so one, I think your book. Um, I'm going to have it for required reading um, in in classes. And I sincerely mean that. I mean, and I think for me, you're right. I like writing, but for me, the process as a four, I'm like what Erica Badu says is like, shoot, I'm artistic. Like, man, people talk about, I'm, you know, I'm sensitive about my shit. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So it's like, uh, that for me is the big process. And then, and then, well, and so much of what I've written has been because I had to get tenure and, and professorship and the academy is this one long, I don't know. I've, I always tell people the academy is much like I grew up on the streets. I was like in the 92 uprisings and 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 so much of what we did on the streets is the same thing you got to do in the academy. <laughs> so it's been a relatively yeah. seamless transition. And so, you know, academic books, they don't sell much. So um, I appreciate your book. There's been a lot of overtures and connections um, with films like the new one that just came out, uh, Promising Young Girl, uh, mm-hmm. and just like kind of the ending of that film where it, you know it leads to death. These ideology, these ideological structures of sexism go deep and misogyny go deep, um, and how a lot of particularly cis hetero men feel about women, queers, trans people. I mean, I think about even somebody like Caitlyn Jenner who's now running for you know governor in this recall election oh in California. My God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like. What the hell is the matter with you? Like, I just wanted to like, slap her. And I'm like, dude, what? And then the comment that she just made in regards to homeless people that. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, what? and it never, it never. See, I'm just like it, that conversation. I just stay away from it because I'm like, I don't want to hear anybody's opinion about this because Caitlyn Jenner is the worst. And you can call her her name and use her pronouns, right? Yeah. You don't have to like be transphobic in order to be like, Caitlyn Jenner it, is the worst. She is like, yes, <laughs> yes. You can still respect pronouns because like the reality is Caitlyn Jenner is never going to hear you disrespecting her pronouns, but like the trans people in your life are, and they're going to know that you're not a safe person. So Ex- thank you. 
See, Emily, you you are, you're great. Um, <laughs> I love this, and again, that's and that's why I wanted to mention that particular film. And then uh, my spouse and I have recently started watching The Handmaid's Tale, and I think oh, what, yeah. what gets me about that at least for me in my own Enneagram 4, you talk about all this stuff, right? Uh, is that it's, there's so much of what's happening in that that is happening right now currently um, in regards to how we look at women, how we look at human sexuality in general. So I thank you for the book that you're writing. Um, like I said, this is going to be continued um, work. And it's also going to be, like I said, required reading. Students need to to, to read this and engage with this. Um, where can folks find you? Where can folks bring you out, you know, to, uh, oh. uh, their place and, you know, pay uh, a nice little six figure salary for speaking for 45 <laughs> yeah, minutes. Yeah, Six <laughs> figures that I make from telling churches they're wrong about everything. <laughs> um, yes. Yes. You can find me on at Emily Joy Poetry on, um, Twitter and Instagram. Uh, yeah, it's nice to, uh, write things on the internet and know that there are people out there on the other end receiving it. Um, also, uh, I, so I, this is a global pandemic, right? Uh, I will come to your thing virtually if you want. Um, you can send me an email about it. You can, my contact information is on my social media and stuff. Um, and also, I mean, I know like personally, my school is starting to do in-person classes and stuff for the fall. I know a lot of folks' schools are starting to go back for the fall. Um, I will come to you in, in person. Also, I am fully vaccinated. So very excited about Excellent. that. But yeah, I'm, I'm very into, I actually used to do a lot more traveling and speaking before the pandemic and, um, obviously have not been able to do that, uh, yeah. since, but I really miss it. It's one of my favorite things to do to like come and, you know, stand in front of people and actually have these conversations, uh, face to face. I think it's really rich and productive. So, um, I would love to come to you virtually or real life. Um, and I just would love to be connected with you online anyway. Excellent. And again, as always, for those listening, I'll put all this in the show notes. Uh, go read the book. The book is Church 2. Um, it's amazing. You're going to love it. Um, I literally read it in one sitting on my Kindle. Uh, you can take all your notes or you can get a hard copy. I still like hard copy books. but I was going to say, you can get it. Well, if you want to line Jeff Bezos' pockets, you can get it on Amazon. But you can also get it on uh, Barnes & Noble. And you can get it directly from the publisher, Broadleaf Books. And... You can get it from your local bookstore, probably, if you call them and ask nicely. My local bookstore has them. Um, and lots of people have told me they just called their local bookstore and asked if they would stock it. So it's a nice way to support me and um, also your local bookstore at the same time. Yes, absolutely. I will say that. Shout out to, I'm mean, here in Oak Park, uh, that our local bookstore has it. And it's up and on the shelves. So, oh, nice. Yes, I love that. And that's good. Thank you so much for taking time. I would definitely, I have so many more questions, but I would definitely hit you back mm -hmm. up to uh, to get you back on the show. Thank you for just even responding to the email. I sent a lot of times emails out and no one ever responds. So thank you. That that just meant a lot. Thank you. Um, yeah, I feel really good that I responded to the email too because I don't respond to a lot of emails anymore because my brain is mashed potatoes in the pandemic. Like my turnaround time is like 10 days. So <laughs> whenever I do respond to emails, I'm like, I am very organized. That's right. Feeling good about myself. <laughs> <laughs> I heard that.